Hi, I'm JT White, author, digital native, and product person, obsessed with trying to find out how to make digital products and the people that make them the best we possibly can. This is Build for Better. My guest today is Aaron Mandorsky, the U.S. Chief Strategy Officer for MyQ. Aaron has been a powerhouse in the media industry for more than 15 years, building and leading revenue teams for large organizations. Aaron is an eternal optimist who has spent the last years focused on bringing a lot of team members together for a singular purpose. Aaron is a friend and a role model of mine, and I am so excited to bring her brain to you guys. This is Aaron. I'm so excited to have you here to talk about connectivity across the enterprise, specifically the way that I was lucky enough to get to watch your brain work in tying multiple different sort of verticals in a single organization into a single thread to you know drive revenue and make the business work. So I have a couple of questions that I like want to jump into immediately. Um, all right, we'll go one by one though. So so there's a data story that's happening in your brain for sure, right? Which is like a corpus of knowledge with which you're operating from that allows you to then communicate what you want to other people, right? And then I think one of the things that I always respected so much about you is your ability to actually translate for people based on who they were in the organization, right? So everybody has a silo and they've got their own KPIs or whatever, right? But fundamentally, like you come in with a problem that needs to be solved. So how do you go about distilling information from your vertical, your business-minded sort of like revenue driving or consumer driving brain to marketers and data wonks and product people and QA people and like whoever else, like what's the process that you go through to actually like get the story synthesized to a place where other people can hear it and it lands for them as opposed to just like hearing it and being like, okay, fine. Sure. (laughs) Well, that translation piece is actually a challenge. I think we'll take, let's take that one second. The first piece though, is this. So I think, you know, I went to art school so I studied photography. Um, before that, I was a painter. So I just naturally leaned in like the direction of, of, of visual arts. And I feel like in, in visual arts, it's a similar process of converting information. I remember taking a class in Italy from an artist named Israel Hirschberg. We're in this tiny little village in, um, in Umbria called Monte Castello di Vibio. And he would have you look out into like God's green earth, like the most beautiful landscape you've ever seen. And he was like, tell me what dots of color you see, you know, very impressionistic, but like you would paint in patches and the relationship between one patch of green and another patch of green, but also to go a level further to say, is it green or or do you just think it's green because you were taught as a kid that trees are green. And when you look at it, is it actually brown or is it blue? And so that like the, the pieces and those colors and how they connect then turning into an image that you can understand that another person can look at like, oh, that's a beautiful field with amazing, uh, you know, cypress trees to me is like an incredible process. And so studying that and then going to art school where we would put other people's uh, visual work up on a board and spend six hours critiquing that work. Like that was our class was to sit and analyze what was in front of us and why somebody made the decisions they made to produce an image in the way that they made it. So imagine how like hypercritical and analytical you become when that is what you're doing every single day. Oh, I think they chose, you know, the red triangle to represent a pain they had in their past, but it was also a matter of building up your confidence to being able to interpret information the way that you saw it. And so that I think just developed a muscle that I never would have anticipated comes into play in sales in revenue leadership, in strategy, in ad tech, in media. But what I've learned over time is that is exactly what comes into play because it's, it's, it's literally that same concept of sequencing information, whether, it, whether it's words or visual, to achieve a particular outcome and breaking it down in terms of, I'm trying to get somebody to hear this or understand this. What is the most direct route to their understanding? And what is the sequence of words that will get them there? And in fact, it's been a point of, um, it's been something that often comes up as like uh, a challenge when I'm, you know, cause I, you can develop a hypercritical side. Like that's one of my life struggles is that this, the, the good of this attribute is also off-putting, can become very off-putting 
sure. not contained or not controlled if it's overused. And so sometimes there's like people in particular where I can, I will watch the way they communicate. And I would be like, that's circular communication. It's like their brain is operating too fast. And they say the end thing they want to say first, and then they come back around to what they want to say first. And it's like literally a circle and everybody's head is spinning when they're listening to them talk because they're like, I don't understand what they want from me. And that is something like I live in like antithesis to like I live to correct that is to like <laughs> do things in building blocks so the human brain can take it in and be understood in a particular way. So the critical, it's funny that you said that because the first thing I think is a like critical is one of those really weird words where in certain contexts you hear someone being critical and you go, oh, great. Like, that's really good. And then I think more often than not, though, people use it negatively. Like, like, oh, they're so critical or why are you always so critical? And it's a lot of that does have to do with delivery, right? How you tell the story of your critique and then being able to like message to someone like, okay, because I listen, I struggle with it too. I think it's also like a Northeastern thing where it's just like very straight and to the point. It's like, hey, I saw this. I don't like it. <laughs> like, and then being able to figure out how to put the why behind it. But also in, in your world and in mine, data, like there's so much data to consume and there's so much information that like getting to a point where you are being not hypercritical, but like really specifically critical of certain things is the difference between success and failure. And it's like a really thin line. So how do you go about looking at the things that you're like, how do you handle that as a person? Forget business, like as a human, like what triggers you to go, oh, wait, this is not one of the things I have to be like, I don't have to get all the way in on this. This is actually fine. I'll be good. Versus like, what do you hear that makes you go, oh, no, we're, we're back looking at like, is that yellow, brown or what? Like what, right. what's the trigger for you? Right. Uh, I think for me. First of all, it's a it's an ongoing challenge because, like I said, when you have this as an attribute, uh, I remember one therapist years ago saying those antennas serve you well. Like you developed those antennas when you were a child and you needed them, and yeah. you, you became highly sensing and you took in all the information and you then adapted your behavior to get whatever you wanted out of that information. But you got to reel them in sometimes, so you have to know when do you pull the antennas in and when do you not. So in 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 personal life, that's you know, that's, that's a choice of, of what type of experience you want to have with the people right. around you. And yeah. so you, you have to learn to make the choice of, okay, if I want to be palatable by a broader set of people, I cannot always be uh, on. I have to turn on the off switch. Yeah. Um, in a work sense, though, really for me, it's a matter of uh, delivering value to customers and making sure that what we are doing is, is clear and transparent and and boundaryless to an end audience and an end customer. And I think then, then in engaging with team members and helping them get to that place, what I have learned over time is just to remind myself that I am in service of them. So if, if be in service, be in service to your teams, the way you want them to be in service to the end customer, uh, particularly working in the service business that I work in now, MIQ, it's, you know, we sit in the intersection of it's technology, it's partners, and it's people, but it's service at the core. It's a service model. So I just borrow that sense of what, how would I represent and how would I treat a client and a customer and how can I apply that to my own team members? But I think what I, what I used to do when I was a little bit earlier in my career and where I see other people wrestle with that is um, the emotional response. There's an emotional response to somebody not seeing something the way you see it or not getting it the way you get it, or not getting it at the same speed, which would then create that rub. It would always be like a frustration of, but this is definitely the simplest way to communicate this or to achieve this outcome or to drive this strategy forward. How do you not see it? And that even that angst, that little angstiness just completely contaminates the experience with the other person. And the only way that I have found to get past that is to literally, is to do my own self-work. Like you have to extract that response and so it never crosses my mind now of, but why don't they know that? Or why do I have to answer that? Or why do I think that? But I hear younger managers wrestle with that stuff. I hear a, a newer manager say, I shouldn't have to answer these questions. This person's a director. Shouldn't a director know that? As right. opposed to like be in service to them. If somebody doesn't know something, that's your opportunity to shine. That's your opportunity to be the leader that you want to be. 
Yeah, that's such a wild exercise in acceptance, right? Like meeting people where they are and, and being like, okay, so like, you know, that's that's interesting though, because I as a product person, right, very often my my role when I'm doing it well, which is, you know, sometimes, uh, is trying to get people to see a thing that I very clearly see that they don't, because you know, it, it is a different I'm gonna go back to your art background because I actually think it's really interesting. Like there's a huge difference between art and design right? An artist makes something for themselves with the intention of sharing it with people who find it interesting. Designers have to make a thing for something, for someone, right? It's like, it's that designers are in service of a larger thing. Artists are in service of themselves as an artist, right? And so when it comes to product and business, I think about things in that lens a lot. And often I have a, I have a hard time explaining why I want to do a thing that feels really obvious to me, if I can't back it up with, cause like a lot of tip of the spear product, there's no data. It's mostly instinct and like research. <laughs> that was, I was just, I, that's the note I took that I wanted to like, it's, it's such an interesting position that you're in. And um, I think about it a lot because when you, when you also t- asked about, well, how do you make the decisions and how do you, how do you know how, how to approach something? It's a lot of people tune to data. There's like, there is so much data out there. And I think there's a ton of emphasis on access to data and use of data and making data informed decisions. And, uh, but where is intuition in there? Intuition is that bit of artistic sense of, I feel something, I sense something yeah, and I may feel it and sense it before others do or differently than others do. But I want to motivate and inspire people to develop and design for that intuition of where things going, where things are going. Um, and I think that is something that is just a, depending on where you sit in a product, like, are you an innovator? Are you somebody right. who's driving development of products that are not yet there? Like get people to come to where you are, or are you responding to what already exists? And not everybody has that, that ability. Yeah. Do- or, or both. Like a lot of, like, I can't, I, I, I tend to think I'm more of the former and not the latter. Like I have a hard time when it's just moving the ball forward. I kind of get like ADHD and I'm like, meh. I'm like not as interested. I'm like, yeah, it sounds kind of boring. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. in, in those instances though, then I just feel like it's a matter of it's, 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 it's confidence and backers. It's like, you have to have backers yeah. who believe in your vision. And that I think is, those are, that's a, another game of nurturing relationships over time where people just start to trust the vision side, because I do think it's hard to amass that data. What you can reference history. You can say, oh, well, look at this is history repeating itself back. This to some of those patterns I mentioned. Again, if you think specifically about our space, it's hysterical to me to see that, you know, I don't want to age myself, but when you have enough time in the space, you do see these repetitions and these patterns of, um, you know, well, it was, it was newspapers and magazines and linear television programming that got translated digitally. And then we first tried to make it look exactly like the traditional media and then we did, then we figured out how to lead people to all the new things it could do. And we're still, we're still in that process. Like we're still there today with connected television. There's still a conversation to have that is had regularly around um, how does CTV relate to linear? How is it like linear? How is it different from linear? How does it complement? And um, so it's like, you can leverage that you can leverage patterns, but if you're going really out there, then, then I think it's just, it's relationship based. So, okay. So from the sales standpoint, both internal and external, because like a lot of your job is both making sure that the people that are selling with and for you understand the vision and also selling what you're selling externally. Do you start with intuition and then try to back it up with data or you just start with data and then let it drive your intuition? I'm, I'm uh, intuition first. Okay. I personally, but I'm surrounded by people that are data first. So you know, the, the business I work in is a British, it's British based. I think they are uh, incredible at the way they leverage data to make business oriented and product oriented decisions. And I think that does phenomenally well meeting people where they are. And I think you add in some of the, well, let's look forward and yeah. back. let's see what has happened and how that's going to inform what happens forward uh, and identify how do we get people where we want them to go. And so that is something that I, I seek to bring to the table. 
Uh, so right. then do you also leverage? So one of the things that I've, I've stolen this from a, a dear friend and former colleague, Ashley, but like um, the idea of like signal versus noise in data, how do you, how often do you find yourself questioning if it's signal versus noise versus how often are you like pretty staunch? Like, no, 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 this is noise or this is a signal. Or is it still kind of the wild west specifically in your space? Because there's no, I mean, there's, there's no absence of data. There's data for everything. But I always wonder how much of it matters. <laughs> I think that for me, the the way to sort through signal versus noise is to think about brands. Is to again go back. I believe in tried and true principles. So while I while I'm also future facing and believe in the future and excited about the future, there are just some things that are foundational and fundamental to being humans on this planet. And, and I always look for those. I look for those first getting into that like order of things and how it's like, there's still, there's a core principle to attach a belief to or to attach a direction to start with that and move from there. And so for me, one of those core principles and those beliefs is marketing. Like we are, this is, I, I work in the world of marketing and ad tech is in the world of marketing. And so you can be on the side of I'm developing tech or I'm a new data provider or I'm working on data practices. But at the end of the day, those things have to go to a customer and that customer is a marketer. And that marketer has the same business challenge they've had since the beginning of time, which yeah. is how do I find customers to buy my products? And what I find so phenomenal about that is that it's so simple. It is the simplest thing like, <laughs> that, you know, it's like all things can go back to simple things. A dentist fixes teeth. A doctor solves a heart problem. A marketer sells products to a consumer. And so I look for, is this going to actually deliver value or drive change in the way a marketer can respond to a consumer or their ability to move the needle and finding an audience that will buy their products or buy more of their products or subscribe longer to their capabilities? And that to me is the sniff test. And so when I think about new things that percolate and I'm like, is this just something that the industry is creating in yeah. order to make more reasons for it to monetize itself? Is this coming from the business leader who wants to create a problem that somebody should subscribe to or buy into so that they can make money? Or is it solving something that a marketer is going to care about? And if it does that, to me, that's a matter of being like, well, we got to move the ball in that direction then. Yeah. yeah. So it's it, back to in service, right? It's really in service of the end consumer. Like mm -hmm. if all of it's not in service of them actually wanting to, or at least having the opportunity to engage or buy the product, what's the point? Like why, why bother? <laughs> Exactly. And that to me is also the fun of our space and our industry and what uh, whatever I work on, even though most often it is B2B. Yeah, there was a, one of the first guy I ever worked for, I worked in, for, in radio, for ESPN radio, and I was selling like locally across a bunch of markets. His name was Bob Osfeld. I love him to death. He's like one of the best. He was one of my idols. And he said to me when I was like, yeah, well, he's like, what do you do? And I was like, I sell radio. I sell air like spots. He's like, no, buddy. You sell lawnmowers and Ford trucks and food and he's like, you don't, you now work at all those places that you're selling to. He's like, so you better figure out how all those guys talk and I what they're that. trying to think about. And like, it has really, I mean, I was 22 or whatever, but like it stayed with me every single day. I still, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm back in the direct to consumer space, but we're making videos and videos serve a purpose. And that purpose most usually is to get people to engage with or buy a product or service. Mm -hmm. So it's still, I'm like right back. It's the same thing, no matter where I go. Mm -hmm. but I think about that all the time. So as a, as a leader of an organization overseeing, like sort of like, you need all these people in the same boat, right? And like, everybody needs to be rowing the boat at the same time in the same direction. You can't like, you can't have a bunch of boats tied together. Like that usually doesn't work. Mm -hmm. So how do you structure everything that we just talked about? Right. So like, clean lines of communication, understanding data, having good intuition, but then how do you get a team together so that they're moving in the direction and so that all of them have the same antennas that you do, or at least understand the antenna that you have so that their antennas go up and down and like they can course correct. Like how do you structure something like that? <laughs> I want to laugh because it's like, I just, when I think about current teams and um, it's complicated that, that, you know, that gets into, that's, that's people philosophy and um, yeah. and how how they operate and how they how to organize them best. I think it starts with, uh, like I said, I always like to start from something that I I can wrap my head around, and I start with themes. 
So like when we launch the year, we have done, we have a planning process. It's a, it's a, it's a really rigorous planning process that starts probably in September. And it's interesting because it, it starts bottoms up, but like blank page of two pagers. And what does everybody in across all their disciplines, what do they think is the greatest way to drive growth from their view? Wow. Which I think is such an interesting entrepreneurial that shows such a spirit of entrepreneurialism. Yeah. To open it up to everybody to say, sky's the limit. So like blue. That's pretty dope. I like, I'm going to take that. I like that. <laughs> put, put everything on a piece of paper. Now the synthesis of those two pagers is something that I have taken on. So it's always very interesting when people give me two pagers at, you know, 7.5 font and <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's actually 10 pages of information. Yeah. Um, a doctoral and, thesis. <laughs> yeah. And you see some repetition from the way people write, but pulling out, finding ideas there and still being in a place, you know, we're a 1100 person company at this stage and still being in a position where we are open to and willing to take ideas from anywhere. Uh, to me is such an important part of yeah. an organization. Now, granted, I'm only, I'm on the U S side, so it's 300 people. So it's, 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 it's more digestible, but it starts there. And then out of, but, but what I'm also looking to add into the mix is that's sort of like a bottoms up, but a top down to bring in that longer term view, to bring in some of that intuition, to bring in some of the patterns of what we're seeing in where marketers are investing their dollars, what is happening and to say, now let's fit those two pieces together. So rather than to be completely blank slate, it's like blank slate, but also consider these objectives and consider yeah. this is where we want to play next year. And this is the degree of growth we need to achieve next year. So that gives everybody an opportunity to represent both just new ideas of what they want to achieve, new verticals that they want to focus on, new partnerships they want us to launch in the marketplace, new staffing structures, new compensation structures. Really, they can comment and open up on any topic that would have to do with operating our business in a stronger and better fashion. But from there, that gets pulled into our sort of launch launch focus points for the year. And um, this then is another, it's a, it's a marketing process tuned internally of the messaging and the uh, creation of repeatable areas of focus that then roll into objectives and key results that every department defines for themselves, laddering up to a core set of five, five themes and five objectives for the year. And is it always five? Is that always the goal? It can't be more than five. And I feel like it would be difficult, you know, being working end to end and programmatic. So, you know, name the screen, name the vertical, name the channel. Like we, it would be, it would be very hard to go narrower than that. But I think that's that's truly just reflective of the current business I work with. if I were working in a with a point solution or somebody who was one hundred percent CTV, it, it could be it could be narrower than five. But yeah. that's that to 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 me right now that's the number that feels right for the scope of our business and the scale of our business. Yeah, it feels. I mean, I feel. I mean, I'm not there, but it feels right to me. Like I always I always laugh when I see, not laugh, but I, I'm always I'm always curious when I see people with like twenty two point business plans for next year or 18 themes that we're going to do. I'm like, I don't, how many humans have you hung out with? (laughs) (laughs) Totally. It's just too much. It's too much. And that's, you know, we end up out of this, we create key plays. So it's like there are key plays. And then we, we bring the the leadership team together on a, a, every six week basis is what we're, what we're working towards. We we're also always calibrating between over meeting and under meeting. Yeah. especially since the pandemic where everything became zoom based and it was like everybody's calendars or call after call after call, which is very little room for the real creative thinking work, the self work. So we work through those key plays. Things will come up through during the year that we didn't anticipate where we say, Oh, you know what? This is, this is a, we want to, and we're going to take a different direction. We didn't anticipate. Then we got to careen a new key play into the mix, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge to orchestrate, all of the different voices and the le- the volume of creativity that is happening in our organization that we want to have happen. Like we want that entrepreneurialism and that, that feeling that an individual is, is still able to own their own destiny and make an impact on a business of our scale, but to still have it be done efficiently without people's heads spinning. So speaking of head spinning, how do you, I'm going to mess up the words here, but like, how do you handle like, interdisciplinary conversations, right? So 
when entrepreneurial spirit obviously is one of those things where like, of course, like you just should, right? Like that's a good idea. You want to empower all of your really smart people to be really smart. But like when you have individual contributor engineers who have really technical ideas or a product person who has a really specific idea that then has to get folded into the business, like how do, how do those conversations look so that everybody walks away from it, like feeling heard and seen, which is important, but also like learning why or why not the thing they wanted is going to happen. One of the things that comes to mind when I think about that is, is calibrating and balancing collaboration versus autonomous voice. Like, Mm. I think that it, that's another, you know, I'm always looking at like, where is culture going and what are we abandoning that we shouldn't be abandoning? So, you know, it used to be that everybody was like, I want ownership and and agency and uh, authorship over these decisions in this lane. And this is my lane and this is your lane. I find that that is just like so less common nowadays. Everything is a collaborative process and um, being able to influence without own, being able to collaborate, but yet make a call. Those are, those are more the dynamics that we work on across departments. So I think one way to, that, that, that we think about what you're talking about is I've been working on building what I call the go-to-market machine. So it's not sales and commercial sits over here and marketing is a reactor in response to whatever a seller or a sales team is requesting. And product is building because a request came in for a particular RFP. Well, we better respond to that RFP. And um, our solutions team sort of sat separately and was like analytics on an island. They, they connected to the regions, but they didn't feel connected to product or marketing or, you know, they just were their own sort of autonomous unit. And so turning those groups of analytics and custom solutions plus marketing plus product into a go-to-market engine that can help with the enablement of moving products into market and helping sellers be better at moving products into market. And that process of conceiving of a product, conceiving of how you communicate and message a product, conceiving of how you need to train a sales team to understand the differentiation of a product, having that become like a wheel that then sits at the center and feeds into every region, every commercial team. And it doesn't matter where the, where the input is coming in. It can be a globally informed product. It can be a sales team produced a product idea. It can be the solutions team invented something in conversation with a key client. It could be that the U.S. product team decided that they were going to put emphasis on the, um, the retail vertical and wanted to produce something. No matter where it's coming from, if it goes through this machine, there's some consistency in the outputs and the components that go to sales and to the marketplace. And so getting that group to work well together or working on that, how that team works well together and conceives of the relationship between their roles, but also the distinction of their roles is something um, that has been my current area of focus uh, that I then, that once that is strong, that then we can look at how that gets exported to commercial. So the relationship between the go-to-market team and the commercial org, so sales, account management, trading, they already naturally have a cross-disciplinary communication system because they work day in and day out together. Yeah, they have to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the globally informed product is a beautiful way to say it. And also, every time that you and I talk, I always am reminded that I started in sales and just how bad at sales I was because I was so... Like, I just, like, I think people, I had a very specific view of like how a sales machine worked and it involved like so much more golf and martinis than it did like process and rigor. (laughs) But like, that is actually what makes a good sales team, right? Is like really, really good lines of communication, really good process, like the flywheel, like this idea of like everything feeding back in, having an understanding of how it's going to be communicated and what it's going to mean. Like, it's just another product. Like, you know, your internal sales team is just another product. I mean, obviously from my point of view, but it's always, I love talking to like really, really great sales leaders because you just learn. It's like, oh man, there's like so much internal work that goes into the dog and pony that happens outside. 
to make all this stuff actually work the right way. Well, that's really interesting that you say that because again, I always approached sales the way I approached it. So I thought that's how everybody approached sales. And, <laughs> um, and that the way I approached sales was informed by the art analysis that we talked about already. And so I would always be like hearing clients talk and analyzing what, what do they, what they really care about? What were the drivers of their decision-making? What were the pain points that really needed to be solved? What were their priorities? And that would then help me frame up back to them of, well, did you think about it this way? I was never a yes person. It was never like, they said they want this. I've got to go get this. I mean, I would work for to their end, but it was always a dialogue. It was always a conversation. And my clients always respected that. I knew that. Yeah. They felt that I was thinking on their behalf, not just jumping on their behalf. I was working with them. And what I came to understand just in like observing and talking to leaders of, of businesses is that sales was not always perceived that way. Sales was oftentimes considered like the very last group and not the intellectual team. It was considered the team that you mentioned of like, oh, just go get martinis on the golf course and you're going to close that deal. And yeah. you'll find that when people are hiring for salespeople, a lot of times they're saying, well, I tell me about all your relationships and tell me how deep are those relationships. And like, do you go to their weddings and how often are you out? And it's like relationships absolutely are critical and are important because people want to work with people they like, but the relate, the, the combination of being likable as well as respected for the way you think about somebody's business, to me, that's the killer combination in sales. And so what, what's so interesting to me about what I'm working on now is that those components of how you sell, how you approach the conversation with a client is, are all things that are not necessarily his, always subscribed to the, um, to the sales team. Yes. It falls to the marketing team or the product team or the product marketing team or the strategy side, which is why it was an interesting um, challenge for me to take on now is because I was like, well, those are the pieces that I'm really passionate about is like, how can you sell better? And like the psychology of how you sell. And that's what I hope to influence now. So do you think that there's like a, like, do you think that at some point there's a culmination of all of these roles that just sort of turns into like a individual, not individual person, but a team of people all responsible for the same things where like salespeople are also marketers are also strategists because eventually all of this just needs to coalesce into people that have a like full picture view of what's actually supposed to happen. Or do you think there is inherent value in having like hunters and like people who are just like kind of doing the work and feeding them? Like, do you think there needs to be that structure? Or do you think that like there's a world coming where you just have like five tool players who are just out there crushing on a bunch of stuff and collaborating together? I think it's, I think there's still room for them to be separate disciplines, but I feel like those disciplines are at their best when they are carrying the attributes of the other ones. So like the best seller can think like a marketer and the best marketer can think like a seller. No question to me. And this is a relationship I've thought a lot about recently because in making the shift to the role that I'm in now of strategy, which has marketing uh, in, in, in my department. Uh, what I've noticed is that sometimes the, like I said, the marketer feels like they have to respond to what the seller is requesting. It's like a response agent, as opposed to you are two sides of the same coin. You are both trying to sell a product. The seller is selling the product based off of their relationship and their knowledge of the end client. And the marketer is also trying to sell that same product, which means they need to have the same knowledge of that marketer and the end client and to bake that into um, how they are building and representing products and capabilities. And so it requires as much institutional knowledge, as much industry knowledge, as much customer knowledge as the salesperson. They're just wrapping it into different output. And um, so do I think it's super important that those teams and those roles work really closely together. Absolutely. I don't know that they become one. I know. I just think it's, there's always, there's always just too much work to go around. You know, you need to have somebody who's willing to build the activation strategy and the other person who's willing to take a client meeting. Yeah. I I think, I mean, it was, I, I feel the same way, but it's interesting because I do think you mentioned earlier, there's like a thin line between being like properly collaborative and overly collaborative. Right. And like, I have seen, close friends of mine who are in organizations or are building companies that 
are, I think, towing the line a little too hard towards collaborative, which is like, it's okay to have somebody be the decision maker and disagree. Like, I think there should be room. I need there to be room for disagreement in my discipline because if everybody said yes to me, the product would suck. Mm-hmm. Like, cause I'll just do what I want and I'm not a good representation of everybody in the world. So, <laughs> so like you need that diversity of thought to, in order to get my role done. Um, so I just, I, I, it was interesting. So another thing I want to tap into as we move on, as I want to talk about the human side of this a little bit, because that's one of my favorite parts of getting to work with and for you at one point is just like how you, how you build confidence in your teams and also like how you help people who are struggling. Cause you've mentioned it a few times that you're like, you're just an observer by nature. And so when you see people struggling, like what's your angle in to help and what have you learned on that journey? Because everybody who's ever managed somebody, myself included, maybe you're the exception, but like I look back at some of my management techniques and styles in the beginning of my management career. And it makes me like cringe <laughs> because I was like, Oh, no, bad, 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 bad idea. Versus what I do now where I'm like, oh, okay, like there's still a a ton of room for improvement, but I've been lucky to work around people and learn. So it's like, it's getting better. So I'd love to hear your journey on like people building, right? Because it's a big part of team building and specifically at a strategy role. Like you got to have all these people like working together, which means they all have to be at their best and they have to be leveling up at the same time. So like, what's what's your journey been like that from like actually managing and and helping people grow? Well, JT, I can tell you for myself as well. It wasn't so pretty at the beginning. (laughs) It definitely wasn't. I have, I mean, there's like two anecdotes in particular that I have to share about like when it went terribly wrong. Um, And then I'll get into some of the things I think have been helpful along the way. Uh, One, it just in particular, it goes back to that, that, that um, it trust, trust is the word that comes to mind. And I think there was a point in time, you learn from your team members along the way. If you're open to it and if you're open to having the mirror reflected back to you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and I remember I had uh, somebody on my team who was great. I love her to this day, and but I, I couldn't trust. And so it was like part of my growth also in becoming strong at sales was great account management, great customer service. I always, that to me is the easy part. You can deliver what they're looking for by giving above and beyond service. So things would come up along the way when I went from being an individual contributor, where I still was accountable for my own book to having people underneath me that also had to drive that book forward. So, you know, there's, you're still like heavily in it. You're, you know, your fingers are all over it. And um, if something didn't get done in the exact time frame or in the exact way, I would kind of lose it. And I remember one time I, I picked up that old desk phone and I called five feet away where this person was sitting. And I was like, why didn't you do da, 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 da. And she was like, hold on. Like I did do it. I just did it in this way or I didn't put you on it or something. And I was like, oh, okay. But I, you know, it's embarrassing to think about it. I reacted first. And she said to me then, she said, I don't understand. She challenged me. She said, I don't understand why you don't trust me at all. Can you just give me a little bit of trust that I'm doing it and um, go with that before the assumption of it not happening? So, you know, she was, that's a kind person. That's and a really kind person. Yeah. Who was, willing to, who was willing to point that out to me. And um, I'm sure I didn't learn it immediately, but I, it stuck with me. It's that, that anecdote in particular stuck with me. What I would say back to your initial question is uh, I'm a big, I didn't know it, but uh, until I read it, that what I had been doing and what I am attracted to is radical candor. So Kim Scott, radical candor, it's also kind of like a table stakes. I feel like everybody should read it. Everybody should know it. But what was helpful to me is she gave language to what was happening naturally for me, which is that while I am direct and while I do um, invest in performance enhancement, that's how I see it. Like my role is to help you get the most out of you. Performance enhancement. I'm like a PED. Like yeah. you, you work with me and you are going to learn something to be better about your approach to work. Yeah. Um, but if you don't do that with caring, then it, it just goes terribly wrong. And the caring piece is the part that I would say the mindfulness work I've done has been about that. When I said being in in service, because some people you care about immediately because it's just chemistry in life, right? It's connection. Some people feel immediate connection. I care about them. Therefore I can be direct with them because they know I'm invested in them. And then there's some people where you don't have that same connection naturally, but if they know that it's, and it's, you know, communication is what 90% nonverbal. It's like, 
it comes out of you whether you want it to or not. And if you can't find a way to care about somebody, it don't have them on your team because this is not going to work. So it's, that really is the, is the formula. And then, you know, it's also a matter of good decision-making when you're hiring, because I, I find that one of the attributes I have to look for is that somebody is, is also on a journey and they're open to the mindfulness and they're open to the self-awareness. To me, that's like snitches with and snitches without people who want to look at themselves, yeah. and people who do not want to look at themselves. If I'm working with somebody who does not want to look at themselves or see themselves, we will have a terrible work dynamic. It will never work. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. that. But, and the opportunity in working with me is that I'm so in tune with my own journey. I've done so, so much of this work to face my demons and to be better at how I communicate and to be a stronger leader that that is um, something I'm invested in helping develop in other, in other leaders as well. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, I think that the, the hiring practice is such an important thing. And like I, you know, as as I get older, I realize that like there's definitely you can feel chemistry. Like I, it's just true. Like there's just there's no doubt about it. Um, but also recognizing that not having chemistry with somebody doesn't make them the bad fit, right? Mm-hmm. Like that that's a really hard thing that I'm still very very not great at. Like I can feel myself leaning into people that I like and I'm like, I like them. And then I'll find reasons why they're a better fit. And I'm like, actually, you mentioned something earlier too. I don't remember the exact context, but Marcus Buckingham does that whole like, oh, the um, your antennas. So now to some of your strengths. I, the Gallup thing, I'm not a huge fan of the 34 themes and all the take the tests and the whatever. However, the conceit that we spend more of our time doing the things that we like when we're younger, we get, if we're bad at math, we practice more at math instead of leaning into the thing that you're actually really good at. Mm-hmm. Right. And then in American culture specifically, we have this idea that you need to do that as opposed to just like being a killer at what you do, surround yourself with people that do the rest, but also that the things that you're naturally good at are not inherently your strengths. They're just the themes that you have. They can also be your downfall. Right. So if you are a hyper-focused individual, that can be a really great thing, or it can be the thing that kills you. And so rounding your teams out and hiring people that are both have the mirror neuron thing, which I'm also a huge proponent of, like people that are also just doing the work. Uh, But then this idea that just because there's not that immediate attraction doesn't mean that they're not on the same journey. I'm more interested on people on the journey now than I used to be. Totally. It's just like I totally agree. A lot of people have said, you know, you have to surround yourself by people who are different from you. Um, surround yourself by people who are smarter than you. You know, the the points of a team is a matter of like all of the ingredients coming together. Yeah. And while I think that's true, I think there are uh, underlying values that you can't teach people. And that yeah. is the piece that I think sometimes people forget to look for when they're recruiting. And I think a lot of that also comes from self-awareness about who you are as the hiring manager. Because yeah. if you have strong principles around... Um, what values you want to see in the workplace and you don't look for those, it's, you're never going to be happy with that person that you hired by not looking. So it could be like, Oh yeah, I think they've done this job. Similarly, they can, they can meet the job requirements, but if they're not bringing the same values to the table and you're not flexible on that, it's not something you can change. That, that is something that people bring into the room that I don't think a leader really can sculpt. Yeah. I think that's, that's purpose, right? Like if everybody, like you need to have like intention and purpose with what you're doing. And you can't, yeah, I mean, you're not going to change somebody's outlook. Like that's a really hard, like you can, you can grow people and people can grow inside of an organization, but I think it's highly unlikely. I, I've, I don't know that I've ever seen somebody actually change the way they function as a human right. in order to fit their job. <laughs> right. And that all comes from like pain threshold. Like that's a big piece that I think they're, so they're like these really sort of subtle attributes of a person that you would never see in a job description. Yeah. But I think it's a matter of understanding like what environment you're in. So when, when people move a lot, like they bounce from roles to roles, I, I sometimes will interpret that to mean, well, you know, usually you get to a point in a role where there's challenges. And if you stay, it signals that you worked through those challenges, not that there were not challenges. There are always going to be challenges. And the move is usually a sign of like, well, I didn't, I didn't want to work through the yeah, It got challenge. hard. got too hard. Yeah. It got to, right. And so that's another, you know, interest that, that book 
the subtle art of how not to give an F, you know, that yeah. one. You can curse um, here. I can, <laughs> subtle art. <laughs> I know I just made it so like puritanical. The subtle art of how not to give a fuck. Um, that one I thought was so interesting conceptually because it was basically the premise of like you have in life what you are willing to endure from a pain threshold. Yeah. People who work out religiously because it's uncomfortable. Nobody really likes the workout, but they're okay with it because they like the results of, you know? And so I always thought that was an interesting analysis too, but that, that applies in the workplace too, of you gotta, you gotta have a match on people's pain threshold for whatever you'll be experiencing or the discomforts or just the environment, like recognizing what the environment's going to bring into the mix. And somebody does, does somebody have the heart and the skin for it? Yeah. And then like the, the thing that's resonating the most with me right now is hearing sort of everything that you've said today and how important, like, all of it is goes together, right? So this idea of people like a team, so everyone having that same mirror neuron and all those people having the same values means that they're more likely to communicate, means they're more likely to be able to be collaborative, means they're more likely to be led in a, in a, in a direction where they're all not going to be combative or healthily combative is one thing, but like combative just for combative sake is not, right? Like it's so important, the makeup of the organization and the management style as to how people are going to move forward. Because, you know, there's one thing I've definitely learned is that there's not bad management styles. There's bad management styles for certain teams. Right. Like some people like authoritarian and sort of like military. It works like it's okay. But if you have a couple people who are and a couple people who aren't, it's it's a real challenge. Like that beget, that that does not beget good products and good results. <laughs> well, no, for sure. And I think, again, that, that also relates back to some of what we were talking about earlier, the sensing, the same yeah. like. I'm sensing the tides that are happening. You, it's, it's, you feel the energy of a room and you feel the energy of a team that's useful in what should I be developing from a product perspective? What is happening in this client pitch? And are they responding to us or not responding to us? And what is happening on my team? That is also something that I think is a big point of learning for people when they move into leadership of you don't just let it go. Like when, yeah. when there's something that is off, and there's really, there's really no bounds to what you should be involved in or should address if, when it comes to business decisions, but also people decisions and people dynamics. And I think I had a, a wonderful leader. Um, her name was Jill. And I learned this from her uh, a few roles ago of just like, you want to get in front of the swirl. It's like, if you, if you sense the swirl, you don't just, and a lot of times you'll find people who are like, something's going on, something is happening, it's toxic, or there's people fighting or there's tension everybody can feel it. There are oh, no yeah. secrets in a workplace. There are no secrets on a team. It's like, no. the, you know, the best kept secrets are never secrets. It's like you feel it. Everybody's talking about it. And then people are spending more time going underground and talking about those things as opposed to somebody saying, let's just fix this. Let me yeah. bring these two people. And that, that to me is something I'm not bashful about doing. Like if something is weird, it's just like, let's, let's clean it up. There's yeah. no reason to leave. And that I actually got from Landmark Forum. Did you ever do the Landmark Forum? I didn't, but I'm very familiar. Yeah, I did that. I did it. Uh, I did the one weekend. I didn't get pulled into the subsequent month, which is what everybody's afraid of when they go. It's, you know, it's yeah. as if it's like a cult. I don't yeah. know why it has that rap, I guess, because of the enrollment aspect. They want the yeah. people who, but there are definitely points of value that I got from that experience. And I remember one of them was just, they, they um, articulated and identified that that thing of like, nothing is really invisible. You can see it and sense it and feel it. So don't leave it and don't yeah. wait for somebody else to be the one to clean it up. You just go do it. You just go fix the energy and you can always have you, do you not always feel when you've resolved something of conflict with somebody? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's well, it's, and yeah, I mean, one of my favorite topics in general is like the IQ versus EQ conversation. And like, this is one of those EQ things where like, if you have it, and you don't identify it, then you both, then then you're lacking both EQ and IQ. <laughs> totally. totally. Well, and it's it's like the identification of it, and then have the courage to go do something about it. Yeah. Well, that that take like for me that took a lot of time because like I would see it, and then also like one of the mistakes that I made for a long time in my career is I would try to fix it behind the scenes because I didn't I wasn't brave enough to do it publicly, mm-hmm. and so I would try to like fix stuff uh, like you know over time, small little things here and there. As opposed to just like putting everybody in a room being like, this sucks, right? Like, are we not enjoying this? Can we stop this nonsense? Totally. Like, and I've, I've got, I'm, I'm better about it now, but I still, you know, there's still, a, there, I still have a, 
you don't want to hurt people's feelings. Like I don't want to call people to the carpet. I also like don't want to be wrong. Like you don't want to be embarrassed and have like, oh, nobody else is having a bad time. It's just me. Oh no. <laughs> right, right. right. That, there's a fear factor there. You know, I just I find it really fascinating because I, these are things that are supposed to be invisible. Energy is supposed to be invisible. Emotion is supposed to be invisible. And they are the most visible things on the planet. It's yeah. like you can, you feel it. There's a physical, like chemical connection to it. That, to, that That's something also I've been thinking a lot about lately is just in observing uh, other leaders I'm around right now. When I look, I because I always try to find strengths in other people. I'm like, what is it that makes them good at what they do? I'm sort of like, you like watch and borrow, borrow from what's around you. Yeah. And uh what I've come to is that emotional regulation, emotional regula- regulation and lack of insecurity are the two greatest strengths I think a leader can have. Because when you have insecurity, which is a very, it is very uh, profound and identifiable in a lot of people. Yeah. You can see that so much of behavior and team mechanics or responses to things comes from a place of insecurity as opposed to security. The difference in two people of like this one's secure and this one's not, it's night and day. Yeah. And that and the emotional regulation to any challenge of uh, I don't need to react because I'm just going to move into action. The rea- And the, the reaction or the emotional reaction actually takes my energy away from moving into action. It clouds your brain from being able to do what it needs to do. That to me are some of the success um, success meters I have found lately. I mean, there's no way that I'm going to be able to top that. So let's move into We'll wrap here. So I, I don't know if you've ever saw Inside the Actor Studio with Bernard Pivot, but or with James Lipton, who did Bernard Pivot's questionnaire. But I have nine quick questions that are quick fire. You don't have to give any context if you don't want. Just answer as you want. And then okay. we'll wrap on that. Uh, the first one is a quote or concept that you love. If your head is wax, don't walk in the sun by Benjamin Franklin. That's brilliant. That's great. <laughs> All right. What about a quote or a concept that you do not like? Concept I do not like. Uh, oh, shoot. I had something recently where I was like, that just does not work for me. Can I do a pass? I have to come back to that one. Yeah, we can pass. That's good. Uh, <laughs> what's a job other than your own you would love to have? Uh, a floral farmer, flower farmer. Love it. Uh, what about a job you would never, ever want? Tax collector. Okay. <laughs> That's a good answer. Well, what turns you on spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? The ocean. What turns you off spiritually, creatively, or emotionally? Garbage. What's that <laughs> works on so many levels? Uh, what's a product that, what's a product that you absolutely love? Uh, Jones Road cheek balm. Okay. Bobby Brown. It's great. Uh, what about a product that you wish was just better, that you really wish was better? Uh, televisions. I just got a bunch of new televisions and they feel like plastic. They're like, I could like barbell. I could lift them like barbells. <laughs> uh, all right. Last question. If you could solve any one problem through technology, what would it be? If I could solve any one problem through technology, it would be uh, time travel. <laughs> Great answer. A great answer. Uh, Aaron, I adore you. Thank you so much for doing this. I hope everyone took as much from it as I did. I hope you had as much fun as I did. And uh, thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thanks so much, JT. It was a ton of fun. 